0: Hey there, I'm Dana, a registered dietitian and registered dietitian exam tutor, and this is my podcast where we go over all of the questions that have been posted to my Facebook page, Registered Dietitian Exam Study Group with Dana, over the past week, and we not only chat about the answers, but why are they the answers, as well as answer any questions that students have Posted on the page throughout the week. This is a weekly podcast, so be sure to tune in each week for new questions. And of course, I would love to see any of you guys at the live version of this on Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern time. First question that we have, a client is trying to restrict fat intake to less than 30% of calories at each meal and snack. Which of the following would meet this requirement? And so this is a math question, so definitely Bring out your calculators, your scrap paper. You guys know if you're in the math class last week, I recommend you write down all of your math. So here for our options, we have A, 80 calories, 3 grams of fat. We have B, 110 calories, 4 grams of fat. C, 120 calories, 5 grams of fat. And then we have 130 calories and 4 grams of fat. And what we can get really tempted to do if we're kind of going through this question or not really reading it well, we can get tempted to just be saying, oh, oh, you know what, we're supposed to be having, you know, less than 30% of 30 calories from fat. You know, let me just divide, you know, 3 grams divided by e. But this is when you want to keep your units tight to get it right because what you want to be thinking about is – right? We're looking for less than 30% of total calories. Grams of fat, right, is not calories. So for each of these, what I need to do is I need to solve for how many calories are there from the fat and then divide that by the total. So if I have three grams of fat times nine, that's going to be 27 calories. Divide that by 80 and that's going to tell us that we have 33% so already, right, that's out because we need less than 30%. Okay, then I have 4 grams of fat times 9, 36, divided by 110 for B, that's 33 also, is out. Then we have 5 grams of fat times 9, 45 calories, divided by 120, that's 37. So even though we can say, oh, it's, it's deep, we just want to also check because What if you did your math wrong somewhere else? So four grams times nine, 36 divided by 130 calories. So that's 28%. So that would make D our answer here. And where I see my one-on-one students get this question wrong is they're reading the question too fast and they're like, oh, 30%? Or they're not noticing that it's total calories. So they're just dividing grams of fat by our calories. And remember, you need to remember the calories for fat, right? Fat calories in the sandwich are different than calories in the TPN. So remember in the TPN, it's two calories per milliliter for 20%. And then it's going to be 1.1 calories per milliliter for a 10% solution. But that's only for TPN because it's an IV fat emulsion versus regular fat, right? That's when we're kind of, we're breaking out the nine. Next one. To categorize the principles of motion economy, what term should be added to the following list? We have simultaneously, symmetrical, natural, or rhythmic. Our answer options are habitual, intermediate, minimize, and idle. And with this one, what people tend to kind of focus on is they're like, okay, motion economy, right? We break down the vocab word, which is What I want you to do when you get a question, like, what do I know about that? Motion economy, right, is all about efficiency, minimizing kind of unnecessary things. If you want to think about this kind of in your day-to-day life, motion economy would be like, oh, when I leave my office to go to my kitchen, right, I bring all of my cups and seltzer waters, coffee mugs that are at my desk to the kitchen at once. Instead of just saying, let me bring my seltzer. Oh, my coffee mug's still on my desk. Let me come back. So I'm kind of grouping similar activities, um, grouping similar activities together so that I'm just kind of decreasing steps. Businesses use this too to just decrease unnecessarily steps. You know, you're going to the supply room, take four things out instead of one. So a lot of people are tempted here to put C, minimize, right? You're like, perfect. Minimize is definitely a concept of motion economy. But what we're missing here is it's saying, What term would be added to this list? So while it is asking about motion economy, it's looking, right, for a word, synonym that means the same as simultaneously. So does minimize, and this is when you want to flip your answer back up into the question to double check, this is going to save you points. If I go, okay, does minimize have the same definition as simultaneously, symmetrical, natural, rhythmic, no, right, then the other one, right, we have is idle, that one you should cross out, You shouldn't be getting confused with that one, intermediate, right, that one's also crossed out, and so it leaves us with habitual, so while you might not necessarily say like, oh, motion economy is habitual, you, um, you know, what you're thinking is, it is, right, because it's like, okay, every time I go to the kitchen, I bring my stuff, Right? I'm doing kind of these things together, and especially rhythmic, right, and habitual, you know, it happens in a pattern, it happens regularly, it's a habit, those go together. So this one is a really big kind of reading one, but you know, if you're looking at that and saying, oh, you know what, motion economy, right, this is what it is, it's not bad that you can define it, remember to flip your answer back up into the question to double check. This is what's going to save you points too. Um, Next up, I put up a table and this question came from one of my students who was asking me and she's like, Dan, you know, I know the liver and muscle has glycogen in it, but I'm confused that, you know, how does the body determine where to store it, where has more glycogen in the body? And so glycogen, we want to remember, is one of the pathways that we can go down in glucose metabolism, right? So when I have my glucose, I get it into the cell, I can turn it into pyruvic acid, I can turn it into glycogen, or I can turn it into ribose with a pentose shunt. And when I turn it into glycogen, it's stored two different places. And when we're thinking about the question of where is the majority of glycogen, stored in the body, I would put my money on it. The majority of you guys are thinking liver, right? We know the liver has a ton of glycogen. This is what we often are telling people when they don't eat for a little bit. And they're like, I lost weight already. We're like, oh, it's, you know, that's some of the water weight because your glycogen stores are getting depleted. So you're not like losing weight, but you're just using glycogen because you used it. And you wouldn't be wrong to say there's a lot of glycogen in the liver The liver is about 5% glycogen compared to muscles that are only 0.7% glycogen. So, if the question is which body tissue, the liver or the muscles, has a higher percentage of glycogen, the answer would be liver. But if we think about how, like, do the muscles or the liver have more glycogen in it, the answer is actually going to be muscle glycogen. And we want to understand why, because it's going to help us answer topics about glycogen. So we said that muscle glycogen is only 0.7% of the tissue weight, but we have, and these are kind of averages that the table's using as examples, um, you know, if you have 35 kilos of muscle on your body, that is gonna end up being around 245 grams of glycogen because we just have, even though it's a lower percentage, we have more of it. Versus the liver, you are usually around two kilos. In this table, they used 1.8. So in the liver, there would only be 90 grams of nitrogen stored. So if we kind of hold those up together and say, by weight, where is there more glycogen? There's more glycogen in the muscles than in the liver, so I thought I had a great discussion with that student about that because it's a tricky question, you know. And you want I feel like in school a lot of time, you know, if I hadn't been really thinking about it, I probably my quick answer would have been, "Oh, it's in it's in the liver. That's where we're storing it." So you want to remember it's in the muscles, and it's in um, it's in the liver as well. Next question: We're going to do some comparative standards domain two. So Your calculators out. So I put up a table of my patients' weights from a patient that I adore. She's so cute. She's nice and old. Um, from clinic this week, and her weights are atrocious. And I was like, perfect. This is an example for my students. And for you, you guys who don't know, I work in oncology, so about 80% of my patients are malnourished, and about 70% of the malnourished patients are severely malnourished. So I live in the world of malnutrition. So here I'm saying, okay, determine the percent usual body weight. So what we would want to do if we're looking for a percent usual body weight on a patient, usually I would ask them, right? And I say, what's a, you know, what's kind of a normal stable weight for you? Now, if I hadn't spoken to this patient I would want to kind of look at their chart and say, you know, is there any kind of numbers that they tend that they tend to be around, you know, or, you know, what's kind of the highest weight I have in the chart. So, for my patient, I just included from October to December for their weights, and on October 11th this year, she was 66.7 kilos and her weight's just kind of gone down since there. So I would use that as her usual body weight. And when we're finding percent usual body weight, you want to remember that you're putting what they were on the bottom and what they are now on the top because I'm comparing where are you now to where you were. So her weight from December 27th was 63 kilos. So I would put 63 divided by 66.7. That was what we picked to be her usual body weight. And here I'm seeing that she's having 94, uh, she's 94% of her usual body weight. I also asked for ideal body weight. And I said, she's 5'5 five, five, and she's a female. So that you always need gender and height to find the ideal body weight. And we usually are using Hamwi. So for females, we know we start at 100 pounds for the first five feet. And then we're going to do five pounds for every inch over five feet. So I'd do five inches times five. So her ideal body weight would be 125 pounds. Or if we divide that by 2.2 to get to kilos, that's right about 57. That's right about 57 kilos. And remember, for men, very similar, but start at 106 and then you're doing six pounds for every inch over five feet. Okay, so next up, the question we have after this, I'm saying, okay, well, we found her usual body weight, we found her percent usual body weight, we found her ideal body weight, and now what's her percent ideal body weight? So again, we want to be taking what she is now, that's 63 kilos, and we want to be putting it over her ideal body weight, so 63 divided by uh, 57 kilos, and this is 110% of her ideal body weight, which is just a reminder that ideal body weight isn't super-duper helpful. So for her, right, we're able to kind of see, okay, she's 94% of her usual body weight and 110% her ideal body weight. And my next question is, I said, is the weight loss significant? And if it is, for what time frame? So this question is going off the aspen guidelines that we use to diagnose with malnutrition. So we'd be looking for greater than 5% weight loss in a month, greater than 3.5, I'm um, not three, greater than 7.5% in three months, and then greater than 10% in six, or greater than 20% in a year. If you're looking for acute malnutrition greater than two percent in one week. So for this patient, I have her months her weights over two months. So the best and I think easiest way to um the best and easiest way to do usual body, I'm not usual body weight, weight loss is if you already have the percent usual body weight. And it's 94%. Just take 100 minus the percent usual body weight. And that's telling you the weight loss. So this patient is 94% of her usual body weight. So 100 minus 94. And I know a lot of you guys can do this in your head. But no shame in using your calculator. So we're saying she's had a 6% weight loss in two months. So if we look at that with the guidelines, it's like, oh. Uh, you know, I'm looking for, you know, greater than 5% in one month. So I can't really check off the box here. And if I went to the next one, greater than 7.5% in three months, I can't really get it here either. So next I would say, okay, well, how much weight loss has she had in the past month? So here I have her most recent weight was from the 27th of December. And then a month before that, I have that she was, um, 63.6 kilos. So I could see, let me find the percent weight loss from that. So if I did her weight one month ago, 63.6 minus 63 kilos, that is going to be 0.6 kilos. And then I put that over her weight one, uh, one month ago. So I do that and I can see she's had about a 1% Weight loss here. So this patient, unfortunately, will not meet specific malnutrition um, criteria. Even though, right, we're very concerned about her weight loss, but right, she's having six percent in two months, right, which is not significant. So remember, there's a difference between clinically concerning and you know, kind of thinking about malnutrition diagnosis concern. So this patient, you know, I'm looking at her and I'm still concerned, right? I'm saying she's had 6% weight loss in two months. That's very concerning. And she goes down every single time, um, you know, that she comes to clinic. So definitely concerning. Um, And that's what happens a lot of the time with these oncology patients. They kind of drop weight really quickly. Next one is a tube feeding question. Javity 1.5 has 64 grams of protein per liter. A patient is receiving Jevity 1.5 at 125 milliliters per hour. How much protein and free water are provided? And I said, show your work. You guys know I love you to show your work. So we're looking for two things. How much protein is there? And they're telling us that we're having 64 grams of protein per liter. And something to remember with tube feeds is that you're always talking about grams per liter for protein. So the next thing I wanna be thinking of is how much volume am I getting? So it's telling me the patient's receiving Jevity 1.5 at 125 milliliters per hour. So unless they tell you otherwise, you can assume infusions are 24 hours. That's how infusions work in the hospital. So if I'm receiving 125 milliliters per hour, over 24 hours, and remember, I want to multiply this so I can kind of line up my hours and cancel them out. I would do 125 times 24. And so that's telling me that I'm getting 3,000 milliliters of tube So if my question is, well, how much protein am I getting? I'm going to say, well, I have three liters, right? Because 3,000 divided by 1,000. Milliliters per liter is three liters, and every liter has sixty-four grams per liter. So I'm multiplying three times sixty-four liters will cancel out. So I'm giving ooh, a whopping one hundred and ninety-two grams of protein. Would I have this probably on a real patient? No, but I just make up the numbers to learn. Okay. Then my second question is, how much free water is provided? And if you're looking at this and you're like, Dana. I just don't have enough information. You need to know the concentrations for 1.5, 1.0, and 2.0 calorie per milliliter concentrations. So I think the easiest way to remember is kind of just know a general one for each of them. Of course, each two feet has a slightly different percent free water. But in general, a 1.0 calorie per milliliter formula is going to be about 80% water 1.5 is about 75, and then 2 cal is about 70%, right? Which makes more sense because the more calories I'm cramming in the same volume, the less room I have for water. So to solve for free water, I would take my 3,000 milliliters. Remember, this is what I'm getting if I'm running at 125 milliliters per hour times 24 hours, 2. And then I'm going to multiply it times my percent- Free water, so times 0.75. So this tube feed formula is going to give me and this regimen is going to give me 2,250 milliliters of free water. And just for fun, if we wanted to find calories, we would take the 3,000 milliliters times 1.5, and that would get us 4,500. Who knows? Maybe this patient, maybe this patient has a burn. Next up, we got have a question from Leah. She's saying a patient underwent surgery and is on a clear liquid diet, or has swallowing difficulties and on a puree diet. The patient is insisting/slash demanding to have regular food. You educate the patient why they are on this diet and the danger that could come from it um, from not following it, but they still insist on regular food. She's saying, what do you do? You know, do you allow the patient's wishes or do you follow the diet order as prescribed? And this is a great question because it brings about the topic of our code of ethics, right, which is part of our standards of professional practice or SOPP. And so what we're thinking here is if you have a patient, you know, like this one, who's like, I don't want to be on the period diet. I want to be having regular food you know and let's say this is my patient and I'm kind of like the first person who's hearing about it you know I would definitely do like Leah's saying in the question you know explain it to them kind of talk about the risk then you know bring that up with their doctor their resident and then I would also loop back in the speech pathologist a lot of the time in hospitals patients you know there's a schedule for them to be regularly evaluated by a speech pathologists but sometimes, you know, when you have a patient like this, you can try to move it up a little bit and say, you know, is there any way, could they be on the thickened water? But, you know, could they be off the puree? Just to see. But if you have a patient who's like, I know if I choke, I could aspirate and die. I'm aware. I'm competent of the risks. You know, I accept the risk. You can, you know, and it's kind of like a team decision. They definitely can have that. They have the autonomy and we've had patients who do have done this all the time in the hospital. And the biggest thing is you document it, you know, patient aware of risks and accept risks, educated patient on concerns and recommendations, you know, per patient preference, plan for a regular diet too. And a lot of the time you'll see the speech pathologists in those situations. Um, they'll be writing, you know, a note kind of being like, the safest option would be this, you know, but the patient, if the patient doesn't want to do it, they have that right. That's their, that's their autonomy. Next question we had is asking, you know, this student saying, I know for the National School Lunch Program and National School Breakfast Program, they have to meet the RDAs for lunch one third and for breakfast a fourth, but for what? So you want to think you have five different things. You have protein, that's our only macronutrient. You have two minerals, iron and calcium, and then two vitamins. You have vitamin C and then also um, your vitamin A. A lot of people like to think about it kind of like pica, protein, iron, vitamin C, calcium, vitamin A. So definitely want to know this, it's not, it's not the calories. And then you also want to know kind of what are the rules, you know, that you can't have more than half the fruit be, you know, from fruit juice. You can't have more than half um, of the protein coming from peanut butter either. Thanks for tuning in for this week's practice question review. Don't forget that we are doing these live on my Facebook page, Registered Dietitian Exam Tutoring with Dana RD, every Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, and I would love to have you join live. You can also head to my website, DanaJFNutrition.com, to find out about the latest classes as well as study tips and services. Thanks for tuning in.